ladies and gentlemen, we are in a series titled Fight Club, and this uh, series is specifically for men where we encourage you to fight for your masculine heart. We studied how we as men win the battle uh, of the meaning of life when we live by the code of honor. Today, we're going to be taking these biblical principles from Tuesday and applying them to today and what men are facing and how we can win the battle before us. So welcome to Fight Club. Let's give a big shout out to our very own Salty Pastor, Dr. Douglas Peak. Well, welcome, everybody. It's I love this series. I love uh, encouraging men to discover their masculine heart, you know, just these themes. Uh, they always get me inspired. Well, and we're currently discussing Fight Club, challenging men to discover their authentic masculine heart by fighting mm -hmm. the battles that matter most. This week, we're focusing on character, how men discover their own code of honor, a standard by which they can live and express who they are as men. We discover that the biblical principles that guide the development of a code of honor among men on Tuesday, when we, we look through some of those verses, go back and listen to those yeah. if you did miss that. And today we're going to be looking into why it's more difficult for men to develop a strong code of honor and live by it today. So first question of the day, why is it harder for men to develop character, Pastor Doug? <laughs> well, you know, there's an easy answer and there is a more analytical answer. And so as I always, I will take the latter. Okay. It all comes down to the definition of what it means to be a human being. And I think it's really important to understand that uh, civilizations for 7,000 years of recorded history held to an underlying premise or belief that personhood was a result of what you believed in your brain or you thought and then how you behaved or what you did. And Aristotle uh, wrote in 350 BC, this was 350 years before Christ was born. And he said, we are what we do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. So in that he's alluding to the fact that it's what you think about and then what you do habitually each day that creates excellence. Mm. Plato wrote in his Republic about uh, the body politic and what makes a uh, a good citizen and how all this is supposed to work together. And he alludes to the notion that it's what we believe about the body politic and then how we act in regards to what we believe. And so from an analytical standpoint, there's this unspoken premise or something that everybody has pretty much believed that what it means to be a human being is that you are sentient. You can think for yourself. And as you believe things and then act on those things, that is your personhood. But today there's been a tremendous shift and it happened uh, in the kind of the middle part of the 20th century. So the 1900s, uh, it started in uh, probably with this concept of Marxism, which kind of was a political philosophy that flowed out of some of these new philosophies that were floating around, things that had been propagated by Rousseau, Voltaire, and then Nietzsche, and these things kind of gained ground. And basically what it did is it changed the definition of what it means to be a human being. And then a lot of postmodern philosophers picked up on that in the 60s and 70s. You had the explosion of the sexual revolution. Right. And what right. that did is it really 
basically said, well, there is no main narrative. There's no objective truth. It's your own truth. It's your own. And so what that did is that turned the definition of human beings away from what you believe and what you do and how you act on your beliefs to whatever it is that I think I am inside, then that's what I am or can be. And that basically means that personhood is malleable. See, it's changeable. And so you're not designed for anything specific. Therefore, your identity is whatever your inner psyche believes it to be. So we moved from a different definition of what it means to be a human being to what is called the psychological man uh, concept. And so because of that, what ended up happening is that the role of society changed. You see, before, if it's what I believe and how I act and how I act and interact with those around me influences. So I have real time data coming back, you know, so if I act a certain way and then these things happen, then that definitely means uh, I have real time data that reinforces or shows me I need to rethink what I believe. Well, today, society has changed to the point where the role of society is to affirm whatever your inner psyche says you are. And so the definition of personhood has changed and the definition of society has changed. And that's why in today's world, so many people are getting canceled and being uh, suppressed and taken, deplatformed. Uh, people aren't allowed to speak in universities, the suppression of free speech. All of these things are going on in society because the definition of what it means to be a human being is changed and the role of society has changed because society is now supposed to affirm whatever you think you are, regardless of facts, regardless of science, regardless of reality. And so because of that, it is more difficult, I think, for men to really discover their true masculine heart and understand a code of honor or a strength of character where it comes from and how you develop it. Because since our society believes this, character development, particularly in boys in our public educational system, are de-emphasized. And some of the things that are boyish, some things that are expressions of true masculine drives as a result of testosterone are considered toxic and they are suppressed. And so guys grow up in this environment and what happens is they, it's a real difficult to understand, well, what, what is my code of honor? Where does my character come from? So you add to this mix of what's happening in this definition of of humanity, the whole notion of atheism and scientific naturalism. Atheism, scientific naturalism, no spiritual life, really not sentient. There's no free will. Uh, Every decision you make is determined. Well, when you tell a young man that, it's like, okay, so it doesn't matter what I do, right or wrong. There is no right or wrong. And then you add to that postmodern theory and deconstructionism, right? So deconstructionism is a way of thinking that if I I find one thing wrong with something, I can kind of throw it out, so to speak. And so what happens is, you know, young men are just like, well, there's no perfect system, so why try? And then you add to that feminism, and then you add to it neo-Marxism. And, you know, I, I hate to say that these words are probably just words to so many guys. 
you know, he guys, you hear these words, postmodernism, deconstruction, feminism, feminism, neo-Marxism, you know, secular humanism, blah, blah, blah. It's just a bunch of things academics, you know, talk about, blah, blah, blah. Talk, well, talk, you were talk, right. Talk. Yeah. You're right in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. But today, your life is being impacted like never before. The ways of thinking have so infected the world around you that you cannot escape it. They touch every part of your life and they will be taught without regard to your sons and your daughters. They will be indoctrinated with these ideologies. And so if you're not aware of them, they're going to have a dramatically negative impact on your kids and your grandkids. So it seems like these new ideologies are are converging within our society at this specific time. Um, so yeah. what are some examples of how these new ideologies are taking positive movements from the past and then reinterpreting them for their own uses? Yeah, there's a there's a tremendous manipulation of of ideologies. And one of the things that postmodernism does, deconstructionism, uh, feminism, neo-Marxism, is they go back and they reinterpret history. You know, they if they can control the narrative. Uh, by reinterpreting history, then they can convince people of things that aren't necessarily true. Let's take feminism as an example. You know, the history of the women's suffrage movement started in probably 1845, 1850. And at that time, uh, women didn't have the right to vote. And in some ways, women were uh, uh, not allowed to own property and things of that nature in some in some uh, of the uh, states and so forth. They're kind of trying to work all this out. And so women, in a lot of ways, were being victimized by men who would spend all, you know, get addicted to alcohol and all this stuff. So there was a temperance movement that really took off. And these things were all wound together. And they all started in churches, in, in churches. And so what happened is the Civil War then put it on pause. And then... Uh, in 1920, the 19th Amendment was uh, voted on in Congress, and then it was ratified by over 36 states. And it's really interesting in this regard is that Idaho had women's suffrage, the, gave women the right to vote 25 years before the 19th Amendment was ratified. It was in oh, wow. 1896. So, yeah, 24 years where the legislature of Idaho gave women full rights of voting and, and property ownership, all these types of things. And it's really interesting because Idaho only became a state in 1890. So they became a state in 1890 and six years later, they ratified uh, the right to vote for women in Idaho. So you got to love those Idaho values. Man. We're, it. we're cutting oh, edge. Right. We are always out front. You got to love that. But uh, what's interesting, though, is since that time, uh, 1920, the movement of feminism has changed and it has uh, gone into the development primarily through our public education system, but also culturally into uh, how do we enhance women we give women more and more opportunity. Let's start younger and younger and younger. We're going to encourage this. And the reason why we're doing this is because the system has been so uh, dominated by males. It's a male patriarchy and all males do is oppress women. And so today what it's turned into now is that uh, girls perform academically far above boys all across the board in reading, writing, even in math. Uh, more girls go to college 
than uh, males do or boys do. More girls uh, graduate from college. More girls who graduate from college get jobs and make more money than their male counterparts. And so what has happened is not so much an encouragement of equal opportunity for females, but to tilt a system that suppresses the masculine qualities of boys. So they're kind, of flipping, it, they're kind of flipping positions, or at least the idea of flipping positions, right? right? It's the, the glass ceiling has been such a huge thing for so long. And now it's turning into kind of the opposite where it's the men who are now getting kind of pushed down to elevate. Um, these, yeah, it, these it looks at the world rather yeah, than just world. going for equality. They're going for, well, you used to be at the top. So now we need to flip it and make sure that the women have all the opportunities and the men don't yeah. have any. So it's not an equality. That's the difference between equality. The difference between equality and equity. You see, equality is the opportunity for people to do what, you know, they have the opportunity to do what they want. There's no real barriers between them. Equity is what you just described. Well, because we believe there was a power imbalance in the past, we're going to reverse the power imbalance so that we can create equity. Um, and so, but the, the difficulty with this is, is that it has really deleterious effects on men. Uh, they want to paint our society today as a male patriarchy where men are constantly oppressing women and have done so for thousands of years. And so any system that was set up uh, was set up to reinforce what they call a male patriarchy. But uh, one of the ways they do this is they propagate a falsehood. And the falsehood that they propagate today is that women make less money than men. And uh, it's just important to note that this has been debunked so many times and in many, many different areas, women make more money than men. And so whenever these things are pointed out, you know, it's uh, rejected, but these are facts and facts are facts, you know, regardless how people feel about them, your opinion doesn't change the facts. Well, and, and so be, now whenever I bring this up, there could be cherry picking from those results too, right? That the media is going, well, yeah. there's this one, woman who's working at a company and her her coworker who is a man is getting paid more but as a whole women are getting paid the same across the board we're just finding these little instances uh from various cherry-picked sources of oh well there's this company in so and so town that's having this issue and so it's like yes of course there's always going to be exceptions but on the whole we're seeing equality in pay across the board um there's always going to be those outstanding yeah because well in a statistical analysis what you do is you can't split down the economy and males and females and then make an overall comparison and come up with any truth any statistical or data points that make any sense because it doesn't take into account any of the subgroups in within those two genders. And so what you really have to do is you have to realize is that, well, a lot of salary and a lot of compensation is dependent upon the freedom to do what you want to do. And that impacts it. And uh, males and females tend to choose different jobs. Like for instance, men tend to pick jobs that uh, are more dangerous. They just do it. You know, I mean, guys, you know, you see people who come and pick up your trash, you know, trash collectors, 99% males, you know, 
Uh, it's an extremely difficult job. It's super hard on your body. Uh, you know, when you look at welders who weld bridges and people who build skyscrapers, you know, where people die and there's injuries and all this kind of men just, you know, bricklayers and things like this construction where people are actually, you know, framing and building and stonework and masons. You know, these are predominantly men. And it's not because they're male, if there's a male patriarchy, it's because, you know, women will sometimes do these jobs and then they'll say, yeah, I don't like that. But take, for instance, a job that has been predominantly male, like uh, truck driving, right? right? There's lots of females now that drive trucks because the physical demands in the being outside in inclement weather and it's nasty and the danger of it is, is a different level. So the point being is that that statistic has been debunked over and over again. Now, whenever I bring it up, everybody says to me, Oh, pastor, you're such a Neanderthal, you know, you live in the, you're a caveman <laughs> and you hate women and you can, and I'm like, well, that's just ridiculous. What I'm doing is I'm saying this because if you're a woman and you feel that that you want to be a feminist i'm like you know it's we're a free country you know do whatever you want think whatever you want but you need to be honest with yourself and i'm going to treat you like an equal and an equal says when you associate yourself with a movement then you should know what that movement says and what that movement stands for and when that movement is lying to you because uh here's some quotes from the leading feminists in america right now robin morgan she's the editor of miss magazine she says i feel that man hating is an honorable and viable political act that the oppressed have a right to class hatred against the class that is oppressing them. So she says you can hate men and that's a honorable political act. Uh, Linda Gordon says this, a nuclear family must be destroyed. Whatever its ultimate meaning, the breakup of families now is an objectively revolutionary process. So in order for feminism to achieve its goals, it must destroy the nuclear family. Now, if you're a woman and you believe that, that's your right. You can believe that, but be honest enough to admit it. If you're going to say I'm a feminist, then that's what you're adhering to. Uh, Andrea Dworkin, who is a well-known writer for feminist ideology, says, I want to see men beaten to a bloody pulp with a high heel shoved in his mouth like an apple in the mouth of a pig. She also said marriage is an institution developed from rape as a practice. So she believes any time you get married, it's an act of rape. So uh, Sheila Cronin, the leader of the feminist organization, now the National Organization of Women, she says, Marriage constitutes slavery for women. It is clear that the women's movement must concentrate on attacking this institution. Freedom for women cannot be won without the abolition of marriage. I mean, I could go on and on and on. And this is, this is the messages that people are ad adopting. These are the leaders uh, in our country today uh, in feminism. These are the people who are in our media. These are the people that everybody who goes to Harvard, you know, journalism school, Yale, Princeton, Columbia, Brown, these are the ones that get the jobs with CNN and Fox News and MSNBC and ABC and CBS and PBS and NPR and uh, the New York Times. This, these are the people that they read and study. And so they're pumping out this stuff. And so I think it's very important to understand how a movement uh, to bring women 
you know, equal opportunity has morphed into something. And I'd like to just cap this off. And that is, is that if there was a male patriarchy, if that was true, it existed for the sole purpose of suppressing women, then why is it they voted to give women the right to vote in 1920? Because how many women were in Congress in 1920? Would you like to guess, Jesse? Zero. That's right. There were zero women serving in the United States Congress, either as a senator or representative in 1920 when it was ratified ratified, or when it was voted on and then sent to the states to be ratified. When Idaho, 25 years prior to that, gave women the right to vote. How many women were serving in the Idaho legislature? I think there was one. And there's a little debate about when that that person, because there was a lady that was involved in it very, very early on. So you see, why would men who were male patriarchal oppressors vote for this? So what it is, is it's an ideology that reinterprets history and creates all this division today. And most specifically, it makes it difficult for men to discover how in the world am I to live with a code of honor when I'm being constantly bombarded by all of these ideologies, you know, uh, what does it mean to be a woman of in, integrity, um, a man of integrity? You know, I, I was in Walmart. I think it was, uh, it was in Walmart or somewhere. Maybe I read this. I, I'm sorry. I can't remember the details of it, but uh, there was a gal wearing a shirt that said the future is women. Right. And she had her little boy with her. She was a mother of this boy. And I thought that was really interesting because what if a man was wearing a shirt that said the future is male and he was had his little girls with him? You know, people would be incensed by that. Well, you're right. how could you say that? You know, that's not right. She's going to get the wrong message. But there's a, a feminist uh, by the name of Trina Shapiro, and she says this. I do want to be able to explain to a nine year old boy in terms he will understand why I think it's OK for girls to wear shirts that revel in their superiority over boys. Mm. It just see th- this stuff is like, OK, we want to blame men for all the problems. They're oppressors. And then we want to blame men for not being men. And so I get why guys are confused. And so I think one of the most important things that you can do as a guy is stop listening to all this and develop a code of honor as a man that directs everything you believe and how you act in the world around you. So what can men do about these highly influential ideologies that are undermining a man's search for his authentic masculine heart? Yeah. Well, the first thing I think is, is that uh, think about mull over your head, your code of honor. And that is say to yourself, what, what will I do and won't what I do will not do like case in point. Um, uh, you're, you're driving to work, you know, and there's a lot of traffic and there, you know, it always moves slow. You're caught in traffic jam or something like that. And somebody, you know, casts, oh, they, they turn their blinker on, there's no space, and then they push over and they kind of cut in front of you, and that's really annoying. So ask yourself, am I going to get out and take out my nine mil and put four rounds into that guy for doing that? Probably well, not. Well, people are going to go, no, that's crazy. That's crazy. And so you say, okay, so I'm not going to do that, right? And say, well, am I going to slam it in the park and run up there and spit on his car and bang on his window? Well, no, I'm not going to do that. That's road rage. That's crazy. 
So then you say, okay, well, if I'm not going to, you know, pull out my gun, I'm not going to do road rage, you know, do I honk at them and flip them off? Well, no, I'm not going to do that either. So, but once you realize and you start working back and, and then you get to the point is, well, why get mad? You know, why even get upset or angry about these things? It's just, you know, be the guy that just lets them in, you know, because, you know, if I'm not going to go to the extreme, then why get annoyed about it? in, in the moderate, see? And so what that does is that helps you start to think through your code of honor. And I always encourage men is like, okay, what kind of man do you want to be? Do you want to be a man that is respected, a man of substance? And so to ask yourself, what does that look like? And then start living that way. Uh, The second thing is you got to realize is that when it comes right down to it, because you have testosterone running through your, your body, it has all these drives and the way you think, uh, the way you deal with a conflict, uh, with your sexual drive. And Satan uses those things against you for, to try to manipulate you. So in the end, when you're developing a code of honor, you better not try to make one up yourself. You really need to look to something outside of you, live for something bigger than yourself, and realize I need something objective. And one of the uh, apologetic principles or mottos for the belief in God or the fact that there is a God that exists, and it is this. If there is no God, there are no moral objective duties or behaviors. So there's no objective moral morality. Right. Everybody knows there is objective morality. There are some things that nobody in the human race would ever say is okay. Uh, the one philosophers use is torturing babies for fun. Okay. Everybody thinks that's wrong, you know? Right. And so what's really interesting is that if there is no God, there's no objective standard. And so if there is no God in your life, if God is not influencing your code of honor, then you don't have a good code of honor. So you can't look to these ideologies. Postmodernist thinking is not going to help you develop a good code of honor. A deconstructionist uh, attitude towards the world will not help you have a good code of honor. Neo-Marxism, neo-Marxism, uh, feminism, critical race theory, all of these uh, ideologies are not going to help you have a good code of honor. As a matter of fact, they're designed to overrule your natural code of honor that God has placed within your heart that you kind of just know it's like, wow, you know, that's just not a good thing. So first live by a code of honor. Second, get your code of honor from Jesus. And then third, be around guys, other men who are living with a strong code of honor, because then you're going to learn, you're going to pick up, you're going to be encouraged that uh, to grow your own character. So the Bible says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. So don't be deceived. You hang around people with low character. Guess what you're going to have? Low Low character. character. Yeah. Somebody says, hey, look, your bottom line is you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So so figure that out. I mean, that's not hard to figure out um, as a guy. So look, guys, the bottom line is it all comes down to this. It all comes down to this. And that is how do you navigate this world? that's getting crazier and crazier and crazier with all these ideologies. Well, you better know who you are, why you're here, and how you choose to live. You need to know who you are, why you're here, and how you choose to live. That's the bottom line. And you can't do that without a code of honor. You see, it's your character. That's your spine. It's your backbone. 
so that you can stand tall and face the world in front of you. You know, I love the way C.S. Lewis talks about how you need to stand up and put your chest out because he wrote this thing about there's men without chests. You know, they don't act like men anymore. That's because they don't have any character. They don't have a code of honor. You know, there's a psychologist out of uh, Ontario, uh, University of Toronto, uh, who who wrote some books and he just talks about, you know, you got to you got to stand up and you got to put your chin out and look into the world and go out into the world and, and interact with it. You can't do that without strong character. You can't do that with the code of honor. And what you have to realize is the bottom line is, is that God has awoken you from death to life. And when he did that, he said, here is a code of honor you can live by that will never, ever let you down. And I just love that <clears throat> the idea of, you know, um, really just basing your code of honor on something that's not going to shift or change. I mean, even, you know, if you're yeah. using the, uh, a code of honor that's based on what the culture says is okay or what you say is okay, I mean, you change from year to year. The culture changes from, it seems like, every five minutes about what is and isn't okay. It's like, at this point, it's like you're basing it on shifting sand, but the biblical truths never change. And so I think it's really important that we do, like you said, base our code of honor on something that is going to be rock solid and doesn't change. And we know is true and it's not going to get moved around the next five minutes and say, okay, well that was okay a little bit ago, but now it's not okay anymore. And you should be doing this. Yeah. And everyone's got, you know, everyone, it's a power play all the time. And it's like, Jesus just wants to take care of you and he doesn't have any, He's not playing games with you. He's, his words don't change. It's just yeah. what it is. And so he's here to lead you and grow you. Yeah. And so I think that's what's the most important is making sure you're you're basing it on a strong foundation, not something that's going to change from moment to moment. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because uh, atheists like to argue is this. They say this, well, uh, just because there's no objective morals and duties, that doesn't mean I'm a bad person because I have morality you know, I'm a, I'm a moral atheist uh, and uh, Penn Jillette makes this argument in one of his books, you know, and the, the, the but that's not the point. The point is, is that you think you're a moral person, but the uh, the atheist next to you thinks he's a moral uh, uh, person, but his morality is going to be dramatically different than yours. Like you might say to yourself, oh, I'd never rape a woman. But in his mind, he, he, that atheist is saying, well, it, that's fine because it's not rape. It's, you, you know, you see, so the issue isn't whether you think you're a moral person or not. The issue is there is there an objective standard. Right. And uh, there's an apologist who said it said because the bottom line is, is in some cultures you love your neighbor and in other cultures you eat them. <laughs> Well, I think we'll close on that profound statement. Uh, we're out of time for today, but uh, make sure you guys tune in on Sunday, whether you're on campus or online. Uh, Zach Peak is going to be preaching about Code of Honor. Um, he'll wrap up kind of this series that we're, we're or this uh, segment for Fight Club about uh, character and Code of Honor. So make sure you do that, and we'll see you here in beautiful Boise, Idaho at Foothills Christian Church. Blessings, everybody, and be a part of Fight Club.